Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. The April 2021 Roundup is brought to you by Fun Again Games. And April was a very, very good month for me and my wife, Jen. We celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary, which is absolutely amazing. And it seems like we're in it for the long haul. And I'm very, very happy about that. Very proud about that. And so is Jen. Maybe a bit less exciting. I also turned 52 last month. Yay. Um, But that's okay. I've made my peace with it. And interestingly, I'm starting, as of April, my 10th year of filming Rotto Runs Through, which seems like a pretty big deal. Although really, the big deal will be next year when I complete my 10th year and I could say I've done 10 years. Right now I've done 9. But still, April, a very, very good month for us. But um, you're not here to talk about that. You're here to have me talk about games. What new games did we play? I've got 17 to go over. Uh, And as always, it's going to be countdown format. Well, first, I will mention the games the contributors to the channel played and filmed. Then I will talk about expansions, doing a countdown from our least or most favorite. And then I'll do a countdown from Jen's and my least favorite to most favorite new game we played. Simple, straightforward, let's get going, starting with uh, the one game that Shay Parker of RTFM played on the channel, Hidden Leaders. And Shay really dug this. Now, it was a paid Kickstarter preview, but it seems like it's really blowing up. It's got gorgeous art. Uh, I mean, absolutely just lovely. Everybody seems to uh, really fall in love with the look of this game. But the gameplay seems sharp, too. It's basically a fantasy world where there's two warring kingdoms and... uh, Players all have hidden leader cards that will tell them how they want this war between the two factions to turn out. Whether they want one to come out on top of the other, or whether they want both of them to fail, or whether they want peace to happen. Who would want that? So anyway, you keep your leader secret, and throughout the game, you're constantly doing hand management and playing cards to make one faction or the other rise or fall. And throughout the game, you're trying to figure out what is it your opponent's trying to do, uh, because if you can figure that out, that gives you a huge leg up, and trying to keep secret what you're all about. Lots of mind games, lots of really great art, and like I said, seems to be really, really popular on Kickstarter, and Shay definitely dug it as well. And unfortunately, this was the only game Shay covered this month, but he will be back next month. Uh, I think he's got like almost half a dozen games uh, in the queue, and so you'll also be seeing him in the next roundup as well, because he will have a bunch of games to count down himself. But uh, for this month, the one game in April from the contributors was Hidden Leaders. Go check out Shay's run-through if you're at all curious. It looks really, really sharp. And with that out of the way, then let's move on to the countdown of expansions that Jan and I played, starting with, surprisingly, my least favorite of the month, Marvel Champions, the Galaxy's Most Wanted. And honestly, um, if you have been watching my roundups for the last uh, year or so, you would have thought, oh, Galaxy's Most Wanted would have made it to the top of my list because I love Marvel Champions. It's in my top 10 favorite games of all time. And so, 
it was with a very, very heavy heart that I have to uh, mark down Galaxy's Most Wanted, my least favorite experience playing Marvel Champion so far. And now that's not to say it's a bad expansion. There's a lot of really, really great stuff in here. Both Rocket and Groot, the two new playable characters, are awesome. They're really, really unique. And as always, the developers come up with really smart ways to make the gameplay really capture the essence of who these characters are. All that stuff is very nice. The game comes with five new um, villains to fight. Some of them were really clever, really outside of the box stuff. I really enjoyed the uh, the first collector. You actually fight the collector twice. Once when you're breaking in and then once when you're breaking out of his space museum trying to find you know uh, Infinity Stones and all that. And um, why did it come in so low? At this point, I think something that, that what Galaxy's Most Wanted might be signaling is a shift um, amongst the developers of Marvel Champions because they've had, put so much content out. And there are so many players out there who know the game so well now and are so expert that they are trying to really boost the difficulty level. I think everybody who's played Galaxy Most Wanted agrees this is by far the most challenging content the game has ever had to date. And you know what? That's great. If you're a really die-hard aficionado of the game and you're a super-duper hardcore expert who always likes to play on nightmare mode and all that, and you're like, yeah, bring it! I am ready for Ronan, who seems to be practically impossible to beat, especially if you're trying to play solo. Most people uh, seem to agree, playing him solo, he's literally impossible to beat. Um, and, and you know, on one level, I'm totally fine with that. Hey, that's fine. Let there be a, uh, an ever-increasing arc of overall difficulty. Or I should say, I would be fine with that if the developers had ever stopped to do one very, very standard thing that the vast majority of co-op games out there do. Variable difficulty levels. And to be fair, um, the game does come with standard and hard, and the developers have released like super hard variants, uh, extra ways you can play the game. And that's all well and good, but they've never uh, released a real... Hey, here's, a, here's how you can tone the difficulty of the game down. If you're fundamentally not having fun because it's just too punishing and harsh, here's what you can do. Here's our official way to crank the difficulty down. I mean, Pandemic has difficulty levels you can adjust up or down. Gloomhaven does. Pretty much all games do, but not Marvel Champions. And with Galaxy's Most Wanted, they need this. They do have a, an official rule to make the game easier, which is only play half the game. You win after you beat the first level of the villain, and that's a terrible way to actually scale difficulty. That's like, hey, you'll win Pandemic if you cure one disease, and you just in an instant win. That's not very satisfying, and I think it is time with Galaxy's Most Wanted for the developers to come up with an official way to scale difficulty down. They gave a lot of thought and came up with a good system to increase it, but now that they're, if they're going to keep making the game this hard and punishing and fundamentally unfun for a casual player, this is not for casual players. This is only for diehard expert players. I think it's time for them to come up with a way to adjust the difficulty in the other direction. And so that's why, again, with a heavy heart, uh, Galaxy's Most Wanted, which again, is full of really cool ideas, comes in at my least favorite expansion content I played of the month. But then, let's move on to something a little happier. The Kingdom Builder Big Box. I got it, which is great in and of itself. I've never really been a big fan of big boxes, but with all the expansions, you really need a big box to store it all. And uh, so I got the big box, and what that really meant is I got to play the three other big expansions, like Marshlands and whatnot, that we had never played before. And... Um, 
This comes in at number three because Jen and I, we got to play a few games of Kingdom Builder, which is one of our favorite games of all time. We absolutely love it. And I loved all the new content I saw, except for the fact that two of the existing expansions for this game are um, really, really over the top, adding so much extra depth and complexity to the game that it kind of robs Kingdom Builder of its smooth, clean elegance. And that's what we ran into. If you're playing Kingdom Builder and you have upwards of eight special powers available to you, that's too much when the regular game is four. And so two of the four expansions for the game, we kind of were a bit taken aback. They kind of pushed the game a little bit too far. Now, there are ways to get around that, but at the very least, you're going to have... And I guess having five special powers isn't too bad, but getting to six, seven, or eight is too much. And so, for the first time ever, Jen and I had some less-than-ideal plays of Kingdom Builder. And again, that's not the fault of any of the individual elements. All the new modules that we played were really, really cool. And they it just enhanced our enjoyment. But we just learned a hard, valuable lesson. Be very, very careful when setting up Kingdom Builder with some of the expansions to ensure you don't have more than five special powers available, because eight is not enough. Eight is, in fact, too much. Which is why, overall, uh, in spite of the fact that I'm very happy I've got it, there's so much more variety available to us now, Kingdom Builder Big Box, on the whole, came in at our number three of the month. Then we move on to number two. Oh, now this is Happy Days. Finally got a chance to play Aquatica Cold Waters. The first expansion for the excellent excellent engine building game uh, that just makes the game better. It adds new cards. It adds new alternate ways to do scoring. Uh, it adds wonderful new art. And my gosh, we were just so happy to get a chance to play uh, Cold Wars again. This is not the type of expansion that completely reinvents the wheel. It just adds some new content, changes a few things, but on the whole uh, just lets you get more cool fun time under the sea in Aquatica. Jen and I both loved it to pieces. Uh, again, with the really cool new ideas like uh, cards that continue to have special powers after you've discarded them and stuff like that. Neat ideas across the board. Gorgeous game, as always. Our number two expansion of the month, Aquatica Cold Waters. But our number one expansion had to be Concordia Solitaria. And when I say we, I mean me. Because this is how you can officially play Concordia Solo. And for a lot of people, this is going to be a huge deal. Now, I'm being a bit of a tease here because this is not available yet. I actually was contacted by Matt Gertz, uh, and he sent me out a preprint uh, prototype of the new deck of cards that allows you to play Concordia by yourself against an automated opponent. And I fell in love with it. It is fantastic. And um, for folks who are worried about, you know, who, who don't like... Uh, solitaire modes that give you a virtual opponent that has a lot of really complex moving parts and it's almost like a whole game in and of itself that you have to maintain the automa and make decisions for them and all that. This game is super... You know, the solo mode is every bit as clean and smooth playing and elegant as Concordia was. Because all it does is, from now on, if you're playing solo and, you, and the so Solitaria works on Every map that has ever been released, it works with salt. Uh, it, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's fantastic. It's amazing how well it just encompasses all this stuff. But the core idea is simple. You still got access to the same cards as always. And after you play a card at the bottom of the card, after you do all the normal stuff you normally do, prefect or merchant or colonize or whatever. The bottom half of the card now lists what your opponent will do. So I don't remember the particular ways they break down, but if you play the um, Merchant 
card to buy some stuff, then your opponent will do um, some prefect stuff. If you try to architect, then they'll do merchant. And so... They are, you know, um, building buildings out on the board just as fast as you can. They are um, scoring points really, really quickly. And it is a very good, challenging strategy. And the important thing is, every time they do anything, they did it because of the choice you made. You know that if you play this card that you need to play, this is what your opponent is going to do. And so, you are having to make decisions with that in mind. I really need I, I need to get more wine, but if I play this Mercator card, then that's really going to be a big boost for them. Not a good time for me to do it. How Can I do without the wine? Or can I wait until I recall my cards and play this other? I, there's lots of really cool extra layers without actually adding any complexity to the game at all. Another interesting thing as well, like I said, I've got this little standalone deck of cards that makes it workable. I suspect you, if you are willing to just remember what the new actions are that go on to the old actions, you don't even need them. You don't even need to get this deck of cards. But I strongly recommend you do when it comes out because from talking to Mac, they've got some cool ideas. And I, we should be seeing it later in the year. But at this point, all I'm going to say is, well, one, it kicked my butt. Uh, you know, absolutely destroyed me on the Crete map, but I had a fantastic time playing my number one expansion of the month, which again, like I said, I'm very cruel. It's not available yet. Concordia Solitarium. Okay. So with all that out of the way, now let's start talking about new games with my number 12, Transmissions, which was a paid Kickstarter preview. The Kickstarter itself is still live. You can go check it out if you like, or check out my run through. And oh my gosh, this game is gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful. So warm and charming. The story of these cute little robots traveling around the forest, trying to collect electricity and um, various, I forget what they're called, cubes. They're essences or something like that, so that they can make cute, adorable little items, uh, lay pipe. It's, it's a fairly abstract game, in all honesty, but it's so beautiful to look at. And the miniatures for the robots are just delightful. You can't quite tell in my video, unfortunately, because my prototype came, uh, the miniatures were printed on really almost pitch black plastic so it's kind of hard to tell the detail but again you can see what they'll really look like on the Kickstarter page and um, it's just a fun charming sweet little gateway game. This is a perfect introduction to the idea of rondelles. Because players have a hand of cards, they play one, that tells them which robot they can move. They move the robot around the rondelle wherever they land. They either collect some resources or they spend those resources to get some tiles that will score them points. Very simple, easy to teach. There's a little bit of depth to it because over the course of the game, you can program each of the four robots that players kind of share control of so that you will get more bonuses when you activate them. And then suddenly that means you really care about activating them. And so how you decide to program the robots adds some interesting depth. And uh, there are variable ways to score points. So there's like uh, multiple paths to victory. The reason it comes in at number 12 at the bottom of our list, though, really is not the fault of the game. It's us. We are looking for something heavier. And this is the very definition of a super lightweight, family-friendly gateway game. The presentation is gorgeous. You could get anybody up and playing it very, very quickly and having a great time. And if you're looking for a really lightweight game with wonderful components and a great sense of charm and whimsy, you might want to check out my number 12 of the month, Transmissions. Then we move on to number 11, The Dead Man's Cabal, which is a very interesting Euro-y game all about players being necromancers trying to raise the dead so they can throw a really 
fancy party. And it's surprisingly puzzly. There's a lot going on. Uh, every round, there is this little kind of sliding puzzle. But instead of sliding tiles, you're literally sliding these neat little plastic skulls. Uh, putting one into the puzzle, another one gets pushed out. And that is giving you the core resource you need to be able to activate all the different areas of your necromatic lair. Whether you need to uh, collect different types of resources or lay the resources out, um, you know, in kind of a, a, what's it called, the sanctum, so that you can actually summon the spirits of the dead, so they'll come for the party. There's a bit of area controlling going on. There's basically several different boards. Each one works a little bit differently, and every turn, um, you are going to spend some of your resources, these resources that you desperately need to actually summon or bring the dead back to life, but you're going to spend these resources to activate the different areas of the board. And that's a really interesting core conceit. You do a little slide puzzle, that gives you a new resource. It puts more resources in the queue for other players to get later. And then you decide what action you're going to activate, knowing that you will get the strong version of that action and everybody else will get a slightly weaker version. You know, that that um, you know race for the galaxy style thing. And so, um, everybody's involved on everybody's turn. And a big part of it is all about timing, trying to make sure you're ready to take advantage of something. If another player goes to a room that you weren't ready for, that can be really painful. And there's a lot of sharp stuff here. The presentation is great. The plastic skulls and and bones of of your of that you're trying to raise from the dead. Those are all really great. The art is charming and funny. The reason it comes in at number eleven is um, the gameplay is solid. We really like the puzzle, but the two-player implementation could have used a little bit of work. Uh, the area control is a very very. Um, Oh, what do you call it? Zero sum. Uh, There were a few places where the game could have used something to emulate a third player. uh, To create a little bit more variety, a little bit more tension. As it is, for the most part, a lot of the game is kind of fait accompli. Because, okay, I know either you or I are going to do this. There's no third player triggering any kind of actions that will really um, surprise us. I can see the stuff you're going to grab. You can see the stuff I'm going to grab. It's, um, you know... it, it just I, the game I think would be ideal at more than two players. At two, it was it was just a little more mechanical. There wasn't quite as much zest and surprise in the overall um, goings on. And I have played other games like this, or have that have similar mechanisms that introduce ways to emulate the function of a third player. And I really think that's what Dead Man's Cabal would have needed to bump it up higher into Jen's and my ranking. Again, I would happily play this game as a three or four player count because I do think the core puzzly nature of it was very, very sharp. But as a two player game, it didn't quite land for me in Gen, which is why it comes in at number 11, Dead Man's Cabal. Then we've got number 10, Glow. Now, this is a game that I believe currently is only available in Europe. It is going to be coming out, uh, shipping wider um, later on this year. I've got an early prototype of it. Jen and I finally got it to the table after I did my top 10 RV games with Sarah Shaw. And uh, and she raved about Glow. So I figured, okay, I've been meaning to play this for quite a while. Let's play it. Jen and I played it. Jen loved it. Oh, man, she really fell in love with this game, which is at its heart a competitive race game where we... We are adventurers trying to bring light back to a darkened world. And throughout the game, we are recruiting it, um, party or party members to go on the adventure as we travel through the world to collect resources to recruit more party members and set up camp and score points and uh, just race against time to get as many points as possible. And there's some really clever elements in the game because... 
Um, the first half of every round is we draft some cards, add them to our party. And these cards, the art on these cards is amazing. Some of the best, most evocative, sometimes funny and quirky and charming, sometimes haunting art I've seen in board games. And it's all black and white, um, which it, you might think, oh, that's kind of a turn off. But it makes the splashes of color in this game pop in such a huge way because the dice themselves that you're rolling in the second half of your turn are gorgeous, beautiful, colorful little baubles. And, you know, the bright, colorful dice against the stark black and white art of the board and the cards just gives this game such amazing table presence. It is gorgeous. That was a big part of why Jen loved it. But the gameplay is great, too, because first you recruit more members of your party. Um, sometimes they'll bring more dice in. You've got a certain number of dice that you're going to roll. You roll those dice. There are some means that you have to Yahtzee style re-roll to try to get what you want. But after you're done rolling the dice, those dice will apply potentially to every one of your party adventurers. And often you'll be in a situation where, man, I really want um, you know, green results because this particular adventure um, will score me points if I can feed him green dice. But the problem is I might have another adventurer in my party who will die if I get green results. And so that's a tricky part of the drafting. Is it worth taking this character um, knowing that he's at odds with a character that I've already got. It might be because of the entwined drafting. Because when I grab a character, I'm not just grabbing them to add to my party. There is a set of dice and other resources that will come along with them that are kind of randomly assigned. And I might get a character knowing full well they might die because I want to roll a lot of green dice and they're allergic to green dice. But I'll take them anyway because they come with two purple dice and a blue die. And I really want those purple dice because they give me more movement. And I'm I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, you're going to join my, my group here. You might not make it very long, but I really wanted those dice. Or sometimes the perfect character you want to join your party comes along, but they're going to come with no dice, and they just come with like one double footstep thing, so you get a little extra movement. And you're like, am I going to sacrifice getting more dice? Because you need dice to run your engine, which is what your adventure party is. It's an engine that you build over time, and you try to activate it with your dice. And so the entangled nature of the drafting is brilliant. And then the rolling the dice, the re-rolling, and activating all your stuff, that's really great too. Uh, and then traveling around the world, and you know, trying to... you because you use your dice not only to run your adventuring party, but you use them as a resource to travel around the world also. So that's a lot of really great stuff. So why didn't it come in higher? Well, to be fair, if this were my wife Jen's um, list, it probably would come in higher. For me, it is a little on the low side. During the draft, if you are the lead player, if you have the first player token, after you have picked um, the bundle, the card plus dice that you want, you then... Uh, look at the remaining ones that are on the board and eliminate one of the cards. Uh, and this is in a two-player game to emulate a higher player count. I was just complaining about this in Dead Man's Cabal. Good on Glow for emulating a higher player count. After I make my choice, I then get rid of something else that represents another player taking something. But I will get rid of something else knowing it's perfect for you. That it's exactly what you want. And um, the game plays over eight rounds. So, in a two-player game, you're going to do this four times. And I hated doing it so much every time that I would have to make the decision. I, I'm, I know this is the card you've been waiting for half the game. And, and it's perfect. Or I know you need those dice. Those are the dice you need to be able to run your engine. Without them, you're kind of going to have a wasted turn. Sorry, I'm going to eliminate that bundle so that you don't get what you need. And it works... And if you don't mind a little bit of, oh, oh, let me really throw a monkey in your wrench type of uh, cutthroatedness, then I think you're going to enjoy it. But 
for me, it was just painful constantly having to do that, trying to find ways to scupper Jen's plans and ruin her forward progress. I just did not enjoy it at all. And so, um, it uh, you know, comes in not quite as high as some other games. Still, really smart, really sharp, fun game. And I, I again, I would love to play this, much like Dead Man's Cabal. I complained Dead Man's Cabal, they didn't do two-player scaling, so I'd want to play it at higher player counts. I'd like to play Glow at higher player count too, uh, but only to get away from the two-player scaling because it was just a little bit too mean-spirited for my taste. Um, but otherwise, Glow is a very, very sharp game, and I expect it's going to turn a lot of heads. It's probably going to make uh, quite a few Game of the Year uh, awards when we come around to the end of the year, once more people have gotten a chance to play it, because it's a really great design. My number 10 of the month, Glow. Then we go on to my number 9 of the month, Solomon Kane. And now this is a huge box. In fact, it comes in multiple boxes. The game is so big because it has so many miniatures and so many big books of campaign narrative adventures that you're going to play through. And you are basically following the exploits of uh, Robert E. Howard's uh, lesser-known fictional work, Solomon Kane, a Puritan adventurer trying to banish evil from 18th century Europe. Most people know Robert E. Howard for Conan, but Solomon Kane certainly has a lot of fans as well. And this game does a great job of bringing the kind of darker gothic aesthetic of the source material. And in fact, it has some of the best writing I have ever seen in board games, hand down. It really drips and oozes atmosphere in the best way. Um, and one of the things I really liked about Solomon Kane, in fact, there's a bunch of things I really like about Solomon Kane. Um, one of them is we don't actually play as Kane. We play as spirits of temperance and, uh, oh, I want to say uh, prudence and justice and, was there, was there patience was one of them? Or courage. Courage was the other one. And um, we are these ethereal spirits, uh, these virtues that... Um, can actually directly affect the world of mortals. But for the most part, every round, when we roll our dice and that uh, we use them, we re-roll them, do kind of Yahtzee stuff to be able to activate different functions, what we're really doing is kind of whispering in Solomon's ear. He's the adventurer walking around, fighting stuff, talking to people, exploring, saving people and all that. He needs our help. He needs us to light a beacon and give him the strength to fight on. And um, we do that by using our powers of intuition and reason and introspection. And I love this. This is a game that is uh, not just about running around killing things and slashing and hacking, but in fact, trying to embody these, uh, these, these spiritual virtues uh, to pursue gameplay and help our hero through a series of adventures. And it creates a very different vibe, especially because we aren't the only um, spiritual creatures. There, we are the virtues. There are otherworldly shadows that are trying to stop Solomon. And the shadows will actually come onto the board. They will spawn, they will move through the environment, and if they can get to Solomon and hit him, they don't physically strike him. They just trigger debilitating events that will wear him down, sap his faith and his strength and his courage and his clarity and all of that. And it's our job to literally manifest in the world and kind of run interference. I almost think of it like a sporting event where, you know, American football, where Solomon is the quarterback having to get from point A to point B, and we're the, what is it, the linebackers? I don't really know my terms. 
who are um, stopping the shadows from getting to him. But the thing is, if we can stay on the board and stay near Solomon, he doesn't know we're there. Again, we're spiritual beings. No one can see us. We are the shadows that mortals can feel in the, on the nape of their neck, but they never actually see. And we're influencing stuff. If we can stay close to Solomon, we boost his natural stats, so he'll be more successful whatever he tries to do. But we have to get between him and the shadows to stop them from getting to him. And so there's a lot of interesting dynamic tension. It basically creates a combat game where the combat is happening in an ethereal plane surrounding all the humans. And that's so cool. It is game-changing in the best way, and I loved it. It's really why I wanted to check out Solomon Cain in the first place. Um, then, the other thing that's brilliant about this game, too, is... Um, you know, a game, I forget, it comes with like almost 10 different adventures that could be anywhere from 2 to 10 hours long. It's got tons of really wonderfully written narrative uh, prose adventures to go through. And what I was shocked to find after playing it for like 4 or 5 hours, there's very little combat. Almost all of the stuff Solomon is doing is interacting with people, helping them, talking them, giving them solace, saving them from danger. Um, and there's very little fights. And when a fight does happen, it's a big, a huge, impactful, eventful moment. Like the same way most action movies, they don't have that much action. Most of the time, it's the characters talking and trying to grow and you know and, and develop the plot. That's the way this game focuses. But the um, the... The, since we aren't Solomon, we are constantly struggling with the forces of darkness that are trying to stop Solomon from whatever he's doing. And that creates a lot of really exciting, dramatic tension without the need to make this just an endless hack and slash like most of Solomon's Cain's compa uh, competitors. So those two things make this brilliant. Totally game-changing, totally different than any of its competitors. Really sharp. So why did it come in at number nine? As is the case for a lot of these style of games... Um, to get a lot of depth out of it, there can sometimes in some of the missions be a lot of complexity. A lot, a lot of complexity. And we found it was maybe a little bit too much for us. Sometimes we found this game to be more heavy and complex with more things to keep track of than Gloomhaven. And that's too much for us. So, while we loved everything about the experience and the systems, I, I just kind of wish they could have found a way to kind of streamline some of the... I mean, the complexity is important. I mean, there are missions where you go into a tavern and your job is just to get six people on your side, each one of those people has a completely different card devoted to them and their personality and how you interact with them. And that's great that it adds all this depth and complexity, but it's a lot of complexity. And it ultimately just proved to be a little bit too much for me and Jen, which is why as much as I respect it, um, and I would happily play it if somebody else was doing all the heavy lifting of keeping track of all the moving pieces, for us it was a little too much, which is why Solomon Kane comes in at number nine. Okay, let's move on then to number eight. Plectrix, which is another paid Kickstarter preview, and this is a very lightweight, fast little roll-and-write game where at the beginning of every round a bunch of dice are rolled, very colorful dice full of Tetris shapes on them, and they're all in pairs. And if I'm the lead player for a round, after the roll happens, I will grab two pairs of dice... I will eliminate one pair of dice, and then the other players get to um, split up the remaining dice amongst themselves. And then we use these dice to engage, I've heard um, five different versions of Tetris Roll and Write. We are playing simultaneously. So if I get the pink dice, I get to activate the pink Tetris minigame. And if I get the green dice, I activate the green. And all the different Tetris minigames work very, very differently. 
And you are incentivized to try to do well in all of them. So there's a lot of interesting choices to make. Uh, very fun, satisfying, little abstract Tetris-style die game. Um, and the only reason it didn't come in higher, because both Jen and I were really impressed by it. We thought it was a lot of fun. Pletrix does the same thing as uh, Glow. I, I just mentioned, if I'm the lead player, I'm going to take some for myself, and then I'm going to eliminate some. And it wasn't as painful. I mean, in Glow, it just got to be really kind of demoralizing to constantly do that. In Pletrix, after I get rid of one of the pairs of dice, I'm still leaving really good options for my opponent. So it never really felt like I was attacking them and just robbing them of everything they need. Plus, I mean, it's just going to come around to them and they can get what they need then. So uh, the same basic idea that was a real turnoff for me in Glow, I found more palatable here just because of the mechanics of the game. It's a lighter game. It's a faster game, and uh, it was a lot of fun. We very much enjoyed it. A good little roller. If you like rolling rights or you like Tetris, you might want to check out uh, number eight, Pletrix, which again, was a paid uh, game Kickstarter preview. It's still on Kickstarter right now. Okay, let's go on then to number seven. Another paid Kickstarter preview for It's a Wonderful Kingdom, which is blowing up. This has been a monster hit on Kickstarter right now. I think it's well over half a million bucks it's made, and with good reason. This takes the engine building of a very popular game from a couple of years ago, It's a Wonderful World, and turns it into a solo or two-player duel experience. Or not, not, not duel like double, but duel as in, you know, dueling uh, players. Uh, we're still at the heart of this game trying to collect cards to either trash them to generate resources or build them to, or, you know, generate resources immediately or build them so they will generate resources for the rest of the game. And the engine building of Wonderful Kingdom is just as good as Wonderful World ever was. But what changes is, um, instead of it being a card drafting game like Sushi Go or Seven wonders, which is how you get your cards, it becomes an I split, you choose game. Because on my turn, I've got um, a hand of cards. I'm going to pick one, I'm going to pick two cards to put on the board on either side of, or in two different depots, two different pots. I have to take these two cards, put them out there, and then you, my opponent, get to grab all the cards from one of those pots. And that becomes a very interesting situation because I know you need this card. And I know you need this other card. If I put these out here, I'm going to give them to you, and that's really going to help you. But you know what? If I put those over there, maybe you'll take them and leave this other card that I want desperately for myself. Maybe I could even have two cards that I really want on one side, and you'll leave them alone so I can get them uh, later on if I put one card you really want badly and it's on the other side of the fence. So you can grab that one. And so there's a lot of this trying to figure out what does your opponent need so you can anticipate what they'll do after you put these two cards because they're going to take one of the groupings of cards. And if all that weren't enough, it gets much more complex because each player has two trap tokens that they can use per round. And if you use a trap token, that means when I'm putting one or both of the cards down on the table that you are going to choose from, I can put them face down so you don't know what they are. And then the game gets super complicated. Or, you know, super deep, I should say. It's really simple. Um, that one's face down. Am I hiding something that I want to keep for myself? Am I hiding something that I don't want you to know about because I know you really want it bad? Or what's worse, am I hiding a literal trap? Because some of the cards actually have negative um, uh, you know, impacts, make you lose points, or uh, do all kinds of various things. So when I put a face down card, and I put it right next to a card that we both know you desperately want. You've got to ask yourself, is that a trap I just laid? 
And if, or do you care? Are you going to go for it anyway? Do I know you know it's a trap? And therefore, I put a card that I desperately want, and I'm playing to grab it myself. And I'm, I'm thinking, you'll be afraid of the trap I've laid. Really brilliant. Mind games for days is the first half of every round as you're trying to get all these cards and you'll constantly try to play tricks on each other. And then the second half is the engine building that was great in Wonderful World and it's great here as well. And it's it's overall fantastic. I'm not at all surprised how well it's doing on Kickstarter. Didn't come in higher because while this is all brilliant, it is a game of non-stop trying to figure out your opponent and trick them to keep them from getting what they really want. And um, it worked. We definitely enjoyed ourselves. But it's not my first preferred uh, thing to do. I did have a good time playing it. In all honesty, I would play it again. Which is really saying something since I'm such a Care Bear. And I generally don't like spending half of a game trying to um, plan and plot to trick you into taking um, you know traps that will hurt you. Um, and yet the game itself is so good that um, well, it comes in at number 7 of the month. It's a wonderful kingdom. Okay, then let's move on to number six, the Fairy Tale Inn. And this is lovely. What this game is, in a nutshell, is modern Euro designer version of Connect Four. And I would have thought that wasn't that great, but it turns out to be absolutely brilliant. Every time you play, you set up a different collection of five fairy tale characters, like, you know, um, the Evil Queen or Prince Charming or Jack and the Beanstalk or what have you. And uh, that brings a bunch of different tiles that you are going to be able to slide into the Connect Four apparatus. And, um, <clears throat> and be careful when you put them in, because once they're in, they're in. They're hard to get back out. And, uh, what you're trying to do is score points based on these tiles that you're slipping in. And the brilliant thing is they're all two-sided. When uh, my opponent slides a tile in, it's facing them on their side of the Connect 4 board. So they get to see the colorful version and they know, hey, I'm going to score this tile at the end of the game. I see the um, unpainted back. And so as you're playing, you can get a at-a-glance look, say, okay, well, I've got all these cards over here. I've got these little pigs. I've got Red Riding Hood. And I'm trying to get these particular tiles, um, you know, in the correct position adjacent to each other to either benefit me or block off what you're trying to do. And it's brilliant. All of the eight characters, there's actually a ninth one. If you go on the Cool Mini or Not website, you can download the rules for a ninth character. Um, will play radically differently. And the different combinations you get of them really changes up the gameplay significantly. And it is fun. Um, and, you know... Yeah, I guess it's a little in your face too. Um, but uh, it's it's undeniable how fun and charming and fast it is. Just how much depth there is. Um, you wouldn't expect it from Connect 4. But the design is absolutely brilliant. The way these special powers work, so that you're trying to get all of your uh, big bad wolves onto a single line so you've got the majority on that row. Which could be very, very tricky. Um, but the tricky thing is, like regular Connect 4, you can't achieve everything you want to do. So you really have to sacrifice in one area to focus in another. And in this game, because it's all about points instead of just getting a direct win. Um, and the different ways you can score these points radically changed from game to game. It, I mean, like I said, it blew me and Jen away. We both fell in love with it. I did not expect that this was going to be something we keep. I am definitely keeping this. And this is something I can play and enjoy with a complete newbie novice, but Jen and I, as more um, experienced board gamers, can really enjoy too. Very, very impressive design. My number six of the month, The Fairy Tale Inn. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. 
After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Okay, let me go on to number five. Dice Theme Park, which is another paid Kickstarter preview. And this is the sequel to a game I covered many years ago called uh, Dice Hospital. And at its heart, half of the game is, uh, at first glance, very, very similar. Because every round, there's going to be a bunch of dice. In the original game, they come into your hospital because they're patients and need help. Now, they are attendees to your theme park who just want to have a good time. And so, at the beginning of a round, everybody drafts um, for the dice that represent the attendees. They upgrade their theme parks. They buy new rides and install them. And so, there's a very fun, solid, uh, you know economic engine there where you're spending the proceeds you've earned to you know get all these different things and decide make tough decisions about what it is how you want to advance your overall park and as well draft new attendees to come in that represent these dice the second half is where the game really comes to life because the dice represent um, the attendees and they the rides you have set up in your park have different requirements. Um, you know, roller coasters need dice of a certain color. And this particular roller coaster might need to say have a, uh, a, a yellow to, to run this roller coaster. You need a yellow die who has a value of five or six. And then the uh, second die that could be any color but has to be an even number. And so you've got these dice and you have to move them around around, puzzle them around uh, to travel around the uh, park to be in the right place at the right time to run your rides so that you can score points, you can make money, and uh, continue to build your little empire. And the interesting thing is, after a couple of dice ride a ride, they reduce in value. They go from a 6 to being a 5. And they will automatically move to an adjacent space. And then that's where the brilliance of this game comes in, because it becomes so puzzly. Once you've got 5 or 6 dice in your park, and you've got 9 or 10 rides and you're trying to figure out how to get all of these attendees to get to all the different rides so you can activate them all and make the maximum number of points and money, but you have to do it by, okay, well, I'll have this one and this one move over here. They'll ride, and then that means this one will move over there, which means he'll be able to ride that one because he will have gone from an even number to an odd number, and he needs to join this other and be an odd number, then these two will ride, and then the original one will move on to a third place, and by now he's down to a two, and he needed to be a one or a two to operate this one. And meanwhile, and so the way you combine these dice as they hop from place to place and slowly you know the dice dropping in pip value kind of represents their enthusiasm waning because when it goes all the way down to one or zero they're going to leave, and you're going to need more people. Um, but you can have mascots that can change the value of the dice. You can, you know, your your people in the, you know the colorful cartoon character outfits will you know increase their um, their pip value, decrease them if you need them. That you can use them for special powers to move the attendees around. It's a brilliant, sharp puzzly little game um, that I absolutely loved. And Jen liked it too. And the interesting thing is, depending on how you play, it can get really crunchy as the game goes on. You play through five rounds, and by the end of the game, you can have a huge park that you're trying to get the whole thing activated. And you could have almost you know 
10 or more dice on the board and trying to figure out the ideal um, way to combo all these dice to move around, stick around, using your special powers to get to squeeze the maximum income out of your park. It is brilliant on multiple levels. I, I think it's fantastic. Uh, it comes at number 5 only because there were even better stuff. But yeah, Dice Theme Park had a blast. Uh, it, again, it's on Kickstarter right now. Again, this is a paid Kickstarter preview, but I say check it out. It, or at least check out my run-through and decide for yourself if it looks like fun, because it's fantastic. My number five of the month, Dice Theme Park. Then we go on to number four, World's Fair 1893, which is a design from uh, J. Alex Kevern, and I've really liked all his designs. And this is, like I believe, the first game he ever published with Renegade Games several years ago. And I was really excited to find out it was getting a reprint because I'd missed it somehow. And the reprint um, has gone out of their way uh, to hire a historical, uh, you know, a, 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 an expert of history, uh, you know, an, an academic person to help them do research to bring more representation, people of color of that of the time frame into the game to make it more diverse and inclusive. And I absolutely love that. Um, it is such a worthwhile reason to give an already popular game a really nice reprint to uh, you know make it a more accessible game that's just more fun for more players and tells a broader, deeper, richer perspective of the history. And that's great. I loved it. But all of that aside, turns out it's a great little puzzly game too. Very, very simple. On your turn, uh, you, it's an area control game where there's five different areas. You put a cube on one of the areas because you're trying to maintain control of that area by having the most cubes there. But when you do that, you also take all the cards that are in that area and add them to your hand. And this becomes a set collection element. So if I end up getting a lot of red cards, I am desperate to have the majority in the red area. So I need to put more cubes in the red area. But what if that means I get cards I don't care about anymore? Really interesting, um, you know, uh, put Push and pull, uh, you know, where you're constantly making compromises, trying to maintain area control and not get the cards you need, or get the cards you need and try to figure out somehow, am I going to use one of these special powers to be able to change the layout of the board so I can maintain majorities? Everything about this game is great. And also, often area control games are I'm not a real big fan of, but here, it works really nicely because nobody's frozen out. If you don't come in first, you still get to do some stuff. So it doesn't quite feel so cutthroat as some area control games. And uh, it also works really well for two players, which is kind of unheard of. It's very rare to have an area control game that works this well for couples. This is totally a keeper. Jen and I both agreed. It was fantastic. Super elegant. Fast, fun little game of card drafting, area control, set collection, and now uh, more inclusive uh, than ever before. My number four of the month, World's Fair, 1893. Good job, Renegade Games. Okay, let's move on to my number three of the game, Vivid Memories, which is a paid Kickstarter preview, and this blew me away. And honestly, I didn't expect it to. I almost passed on covering this game, in all honesty, because at first glance, it's a very Azul-esque, abstract, little puzzly game. And I tend not to like abstract games, but for my taste, this blows Azul out of the water. 
It's got wonderful components that, um, that you are drafting to grab that represent fragments of memory from your childhood. Thematically, that's what you're trying to do in this game. Remember all the wonderful adventures you had as a child. And you do that by grabbing these memory fragments, uh, installing them onto your board, which literally represents your brain, and then manipulate those pieces, uh, splitting them up, moving them around to create complete memory fragments, um, to get certain sets of pieces together in the same area because um, as you are collecting memory fragments, you are also collecting tiles that represent key memories. And the tricky thing is, after all the memory fragments have been grabbed and applied to the board, players are going to have an opportunity to trigger special effects to be able to manipulate the fragments to get them into the patterns that you need to score points. But the problem is, whenever you take these new tiles that come with the memory fragments, these tiles obliterate those special powers you have that you need to be able to manipulate the memory fragments. Now, they give you different special powers um, that you could use, but um, they will eventually end up blocking uh, so that if you don't don't clear these uh, little memory tiles out, you'll get to where you have no special powers at all, and it becomes very, very difficult. It, and it kind of, I guess, thematically represents thinking really hard and everything getting jumbled up, and you're just not quite sure you remember anymore. There is a theme to it um, that, as we played it, really did kind of come through, and I didn't expect that when I first got it. And we were blown away, because this is a super crunchy game full of very, very agonizing decisions in the best possible way. Um, you know, I mentioned right up front, you know, that this is, uh, you know, akin to an Azul-style game. Beautiful components, really simple, elegant gameplay, but major, crunchy, tough decisions to make. That is what Vivid Memories is from start to finish, and it's brilliant. It was actually Jen's favorite game of the month. I wouldn't be surprised if this makes her into her top 10 of the year. It was that good, and I think it's brilliant as well. Definitely worth checking out. And uh, yeah, it's my number three of the month on Kickstarter, Vivid Memories. And let's move on now, folks, to number two. The Rival Networks. This is just now coming out. This is a two-player-only dual version of one of my favorite card games of all time, uh, The Networks, which is a game where players control, take on the role of network TV executives trying to program the best TV shows, get the best stars on them with the best ads. Uh, it's always been a really fun, surprisingly deep game. And The Rival Networks takes that core idea and streamlines it down into a really tight, fast-playing package that is fantastic. I'm not going to say it beats Networks, because Networks, well, it's a, a heavier game. It's a richer game. This game uh, is fast, easily plays in half the time, um, while still having really tough and interesting decisions. Now, we're not trying to program for multiple nights. We're just trying to program for one night, but different hours on that night. And we're still trying to have the best shows in each time slot. We're trying to get the best stars. And we're using ads to be able to unlock special powers. We have special executive powers as well. And the thing that drives all of it that makes it so interesting is it's a, a card drafting game where, um, I mentioned this way back with Glow, where you have entangled decisions. On your turn, uh, you will see that, oh, there's a new star I could get, and they are in a little bundle with a different ad. And I am going to take a bundle. This star plus this ad, this star plus this ad, or this star plus this ad. And the choice you have to make 
Well, I really want that star because they'd be perfect on my 8 o'clock show. But that ad is terrible. I want that other ad because if I combine it with this other ad, I'll double their value and I could really buy some big special power cards that I could use to put me over the top. So what do I choose? Do I sacrifice the star I want to get the ad that I need elsewhere? Or do I grab the ad and just get that soap opera star? I don't have any soap operas. Am I even going to be able to use this star? Well, maybe I can. Because if I get that ad, that's going to give me the special power that lets me reprogram the star so that they will be able to appear in any genre. And that's the kind of decision-making that is constantly going on in this game, where you're constantly having to make tough decisions, tough compromises, in what is really, at its heart, a fast fluid little game that um, is fun and uh, tension-filled from start to finish. It is a race. You're fighting for ratings every night. Uh, the game actually comes with these really cool little uh, houses that represent Nielsen houses that you put the rating tokens in so you don't reveal till the end of the game who's got the most points. The production is great. As with the original networks, it's hilarious. There are um, uh, you know some repeat cards we've seen from the networks. I think there were some new ones as well that I certainly hadn't seen. But uh, you know, aside from the charm and you know the fun of seeing these particular stars on this particular show. The gameplay itself is great. And here's the thing. Uh, a couple of months ago, I did an updated top 10 favorite two-player games. If I'd had rival networks at the time, I'm almost positive it would have made it onto that top 10 list. It's that good. It is fantastic. Taking all the depth and wonderful, fun, charming play of the networks and you know, smacking it down into a tight, fast two-player game. It's a blast. It's my number two of the month, Rival Networks. But my number one of the month has to be Anno 1800, which actually came out last year, and it's been available since October, but only in German. Uh, later on this year, we will be getting it uh, in wider release. Uh, people will be able to play it in other languages. But I finally, after it feels like half a year hoping to get my hands on it, got my hands on it, because this is a game I really wanted to evaluate, because in May, I'm going to be updating my top 10 games of 2020, because there were a bunch of games in December that I hadn't played yet. And I, I don't know, 1800 was one that I strongly suspected, uh, based on its pedigree, the designer um, uh, Martin Wallace, uh, you know, Mr. Brass, Mr. London, you know, one of the most renowned and highly celebrated board game designers of our age, uh, you know, a new game coming from him, that's always going to be something interesting, and it turns out Anno 1800 might be my favorite Martin Wallace game. I've heard nothing but good things from the people who have had a chance to play it. It made several top tens of the year for folks who did get a copy of the German version, and um, I'm very confident it will make it into my top ten of the year, too, when I do the update. And I'm already pretty sure it eclipses every other Martin Wallace design I've ever played. And why is that? Well, this is a Euro game that has, you know, a, a civilization. It's basically on a really popular video game that I don't know anything about called Anno 1800. And it is, you know, an area of industrialization. We are trying to, um, you know, with our nation, make investments uh, in different types of technologies to be able to work our way up technology trees. We need to be able to generate this so we can combine it with that so we can generate this other thing. And if we can generate that thing combined with this other thing, then we can generate this other thing. Really cool, fun, compelling stuff. You know, building up your um, nation to specialize in all kinds of industries. That's all very, very nice. But why are you doing it? Because every player at the beginning of the game gets a bunch of workers that run all their industries represented by these cubes. And each cube comes with a card. And that card represents what that particular section of your population needs to be happy. And that's how you win the game. 
by making your people happy, by delivering their needs. And the reason you are investing in all these industries is because you've got some particular card that says, well, you know what? We really need spectacles. If we And if you can't make, and for you to actually fulfill our needs, we need eyeglasses. And like, well, how am I actually going to do that? That's a big investment. It's going to take me quite a while. But if I can eventually get to the point where, hey, I can generate eyeglasses, then I can play this card that represents a... Uh, you know, a, a section of my population and uh, score points, and that will give me another special power that I'll be able to use in other ways. And the tricky thing is to finish the game, a player, some player, has to get all their cards into play successfully. And uh, that's what triggers the end of the game, and then you tally up points and see who won by seeing who made their people the happiest. Now, what's interesting is a lot of times when you fulfill the needs of these cards, what the reward is more cubes and more cards. I make the, the you know these these one bread bakers happy and they tell all their friends and suddenly I've got two more laborers and two more cards. Now I've got to make these people happy. Um because remember we're racing to get all our cards played and often the reward for playing a card is getting more cards. In another game that's great. Hey, it gives you more variety, more ways to score points, but in this game it's like ah more people I've got to take care of. And it becomes a very interesting and compelling loop you're in because the uh, you know the early cards you end up getting just bolster and um, you know build up your population. So you got to have more people to take care of. But one of the things you can do is instead of you know fulfilling the needs of your existing people, instead of building more industries, you can just upgrade your people so they will rise through the ranks. So um, and that uh, can give you more power, more flexibility to run your different industries without having to bring more people who have more needs. And you know that idea extends to other stuff as well. Another thing you can do is you can expand the size of your nation so you have more place to build more industries and you get more bonuses. You can also explore the new world which gives you access to different goods that you cannot get in the old world that will allow you to unlock more industries that will make more of your people happy. But the interesting thing is when you expand into the new world uh, in addition to getting these new opportunities to engage in trade, you also get more cards that represent more people whose needs you have to fulfill. And I, I talked about this in my final thoughts, which will be going live pretty soon uh, in early May. Um, one of the things that makes me so happy about this game is it might be a bit a, um, you know, ahistorical, but I love the fact that the underlying message of this game is we as a species do best, we are most prosperous when we are doing everything we can to help our fellow man. That is the nature of this game. This is not a game about exploitation. This is a game about um, you know, rising tide floating all boats. And that is represented in the way that I win this game by making everybody happy. People in the old world and people in the new world. And by the way, the game does a great job of representation of people from the new world. This is definitely not a whitewashed game, so uh, you know, uh, kudos to uh, Cosmos for that. And kudos for them making a positive, upbeat story about uh, you know the theme of this game, aside from being a Civ game, the theme of this game is work together with people. And now, I've talked about all that as if I'm just running my own little thing, but there's one more way that theme comes to pass in this game, is because often, to make this particular member of my uh, society happy, I don't have that industry. And I don't think I'm going to be able to make the time to invest in the infrastructure to be able to develop that industry. That's okay. 
because my neighbor has. And this game, a big portion of it is engaging in trade with the other players around the table. As soon as somebody um, you know, invests in uh, soap, makes a soap works, well, hey, I needed soap because I've got three people who need soap. I can make my own soap works, or I could engage in trade with you to get the soap I need to make my people happy, and you won't be angry with me. You'll be happy because you're getting gold. And it doesn't come from me. It just comes from the increased economic activity. So the thing is, trade in this game is not um, zero-sum. It's not, oh, I've got to lose something so you can gain something. Engaging in trade in this game means everybody prospers. And again, this is one of the things I love so much about Anno 18, uh, 100. It's, you know, it, it simplifies and maybe um, you know, it takes a rose-colored glasses look at history, but it is telling a story of humanity at its best of what we can achieve if we work together. Even if I'm competing with you, I want to um, work with you so you can get more gold, so you can more effectively run yours, so that I can get that soap that you've invested in so I can make my people happy. And everything about this game just makes me happy. Um, you know, because, you know, these are ideals I personally hold true. That this is the best, that what, uh, the best of what humanity has to offer when we reach across and we work with those who might be our opponents. And that's fantastic. And it's one of the reasons I love Anno 1800 so much. And then putting all of that aside, I also love it because the gameplay is fantastic. Uh, Martin Wallace knocked it out of the park. And uh, in the past, I've had an issue with some of Martin Wallace's games because their um, two-player implementation wasn't great. The two-player is fantastic here. And what's more, then my run-through will demonstrate that the solo is fantastic. And people might say, solo? The game doesn't have a solo mode. A solo mode is coming. I have gotten an early, like, like I did earlier with Concordia, I got an early pre-release copy of the solo rules so I could do a run-through so you can watch it in action. It's great. Um, and yeah, there's no choice about it. It's, I'm pretty confident it's one of my top 10 games of the year. I'm pretty confident it's my favorite Martin Wallace game of all time. Both for the gameplay and as much as, if not more, for the message of this game. And, you know, the way it wends those two things together. Gameplay that actually has a message that's unheard of in games. It's the core of the experience I had playing Anno 1800. And it is, it's why, my game of the month. And that is it, folks. Phew, what are we at now? An hour? All right, that's pretty good. I think we made some pretty good time. And uh, those are some pretty good games. And like I said, every one of the Kickstarter ones I talked about, the Kickstarters are still live right now if you want to go check them out. Uh, you know, some of the retail games aren't available yet, but they will be soon. Um, but I am done. That was April. And bring on May. I think it's going to be a very big month. Shay is going to be back with a vengeance after uh, having a... A short month this week. We're going to hear a lot from him next month. And I've got some more very, very cool games, including... Uh, and in addition to the cool new games I'm planning on covering, which you can uh, hit coming soon. There's a link up there in the top right corner of the screen to go to my coming soon list. Uh, my current uh, estimates of what will be covered on the channel. So if you want to know what's coming. Uh, but one big thing is I will be revisiting my top 10 games of 2020. Now that I finally got Anno 1800, that was the linchpin. I really wanted to get a chance to play it. Uh, and I played a bunch more. There's going to be some seismic changes to the list I did back in December. And so I'm really looking forward to that. I'm trying to decide if I should film it live. If you've made it this far, let me know. Would you like me to see that live or does it matter? I don't know. But folks, I am exhausted. So I'm going to say thanks as always for watching. And also, thanks to Fun Again Games for sponsoring the show. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long.
Uh, bye-bye.